We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, you likely have never heard of him, but for historical reasons, you probably should have. It was during the Cold War. We now know that we came within a hair's breadth within a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. Reagan was president. It was 1983. NATO forces led by the U.S. were undertaking war games in Western Europe under the name Abel Archer. Now, apparently, Reagan sent chills down the spines of the Soviets. Uh, Now, I wouldn't know that I wasn't alive during 1983. (laughs) Show of hands here, who was alive during 1983? All right, you're ancient. Call that a reverse Nelson. Well, Reagan sent chills down the spines of the Soviets, and the Soviets were not certain that this was merely a military exercise. And to make matters worse, Soviet intelligence and radar picked up a nuclear missile attack directed toward them from the United States. Now, given the war games... This would have been an audacious move, but a possibility nevertheless. The person whom you likely have never heard of is Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov. He was the one man responsible for either making or not making the call to Moscow in light of a nuclear war, which undoubtedly would have set off a a series of exchanges of nuclear weapons. If it was an attack, and he didn't make the call, he would be the one person responsible for the demise of his own nation. If he were wrong the other way and did make the call, he would be the one person responsible for the demise of all humanity. Well, instead of making the call, he reasoned that in light of the war games going on, it probably wasn't a nuclear attack and made the decision that it was most likely a technical glitch. And he was right. It was a glitch. It happened two more times, and he made the same decision each time. Now, I am grateful for the bit, every bit of reasoning power Colonel Petrov possessed that day, because if he was off by just one iota, we likely wouldn't be here today. If his rational sensibilities were right in every area of life, but lacking in this one, it wouldn't have mattered. And so Colonel Petrov is probably the only person on the planet who has single-handedly prevented a nuclear war. Sometimes small things matter in a major way. One person, one decision, one phone call. Sometimes all it takes is a lapse and one thing to detonate a series of catastrophic events in your life. A lapse in speech. You said the right thing, but in the wrong way. And now somebody's feelings are hurt. Uh, A lapse in expectation. You put hope in a good thing, but you put too much hope in that good thing. And that good thing lets you down and Now you're disappointed. Or a lapse in leadership. You took one step in the wrong direction, and as soon as you make that correction, 50 other people are headed off the wrong way. Sometimes 
Small things have major consequences. Well, today we're going to look at a major judge with a minor flaw. And we're going to look at a minor judge for a major lesson. So please open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 3 in that very graphic text that Charles read to you. The title today is A Major Lesson from a Minor Judge. A Major Lesson from a Minor Judge. Now, from the get-go, every Christian needs to understand that he or she is a leader in some form or fashion. Every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, by virtue of being a Christian, you are a leader. One, you are leading what it looks like to follow Christ. As you follow the king, you are saying, look at me as I follow him. Two, you are leading by your involvement in the body of Christ. How you are involved in the body of God's son sets an example of leadership. And three, you are a leader to a lost world saying, come and follow me. Look at me as I follow the king. And so every Christian in some form, some fashion, in some way has to recognize they are a leader. And the book of Judges is primarily a book dealing with godly leadership or the lack thereof. God raises up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt through the wilderness and to the border of the promised land. Moses dies, God raises up Joshua as a leader. Joshua leads his people into the promised land and begins to possess it, but he dies. And so Judges 1-1 begins with the death of Joshua and, then a, and a question posed by the nation to God. Who now will lead us to defeat the Canaanites? Who now will lead us into the promised land, the land of Canaan? In other words, who now is going to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land according to the promises of God? And what God will do is he will raise up judges. He will raise up minor judges and major judges. And just depending on the amount of ink they get, they are a major judge or a minor judge. And judges are military political leaders. And Othniel is the first judge. And Othniel is a perfect judge. No minor flaws, no strange idiosyncrasies, no questionable characteristic traits are given by him or given to us, the reader, that call his leadership into question. And he becomes the standard model for all the judges who follow after him. Something else about the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a digressive book. After Othniel, the judges progressively digress in their leadership, and you end up with a guy named Samson, whose name means sunny, and who loses his power to a woman named Delilah, who means darkness. And so, with leadership goes the nation. So Judges is a tailspin of both nation and her leaders. And then there is this thing called the paradigm cycle, the paradigm of the book of Judges, or the cycle of the book of Judges. And there's these seven things that, you, that reoccur as you read through the book of Judges. You see that uh, Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. God will discipline Israel. 
Israel will cry out to the Lord. God will raise up judges. God will empower those judges to deliver Israel. God will bring rest to the land, and then the judge will die. And then repeat. Evil in the sight of the Lord, discipline, cry out. God will raise up a judge. God will empower that judge. Rest in the land, judge dies. And this cycle continues. And whenever that pattern is broken, it's often an an interpretive clue to the theological thrust of that passage. It plays a role in the interpreting the text, which will have a, a role today in our text. So we are in Judges chapter three. Othniel has died. Israel is being oppressed by a Moabite king named Eglon. Yahweh the Lord, God, will raise up Ehud. Ehud is tasked by Israel to deliver tribute to uh, Eglon, Ehud will assassinate Eglon with a dagger. He will escape, and then there will be rest in the land. Now, <clears throat> there's a temptation here, and I want to kind of short-circuit it now. Ehud is not a bad judge. In fact, he is the second best judge. But he is the first judge after the perfect judge. And so with him, the spiral begins because this major judge has a minor problem that will be highlighted by a minor judge in a major way. Hang in there, you'll see. In fact, here's what we're gonna see. If you look at the slide behind me, here's kind of the outline and this will help us navigate through the text. But we're gonna see one that We're gonna see Israel's lapse into sin. We're gonna see the cycle. And then we're gonna see Ehud's left-handed tactics. Not everything is all right with Ehud. And then we're gonna see Shamgar's laudable lesson. A one-verse applause on a minor, minor judge. So right from the start, verse 12, we're told twice that Israel again or continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a result, the Lord strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Now, God's strengthening of Eglon is the same verb used to describe God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart and that of the Egyptian people. So this, of course, is not a good thing. And with great irony, Eglon, in verse 13, defeated defeated Israel, and they possessed, literally dispossessed Israel from the city of the palm trees, likely being Jericho, which Joshua had previously conquered. So it seems that there is this reversal of God's blessing going on. And so far, what we've seen is Israel has done evil in the sight of the Lord. God has disciplined that evil. And now we should expect to see Israel cry out to the Lord according to the paradigm. Verse 15, when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud. What is the next expected element of the cycle? The Lord empowering that judge. But interestingly, we are never told the Lord came upon Ehud like he did Othniel. Now in verse 28, Ehud will say, jump over there to verse 28, 
Ehud will say, the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So it's not that Ehud is a leader without faith, but we're never told that the Lord came upon him. We're never told by the narrator's voice that the Lord is the one who delivered Israel, which is often the case with all the major judges. But what we are told instead in verse 16 is that Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. In the assassination events that follow, the Lord is literarily absent from the plans of Ehud, which in fact is it's the very thing that begins the downward spiral of leadership in the book of Judges. God is not involved in Ehud's plans. Now recently, my sewage line was completely clogged with tree roots. Now in the 50s, just after World War II, to save material, they often made their pipes out of clay. Now, when we dug everything up, the clay, for the most part, was okay. I mean, in fact, we, found, we find the Dead Sea Scrolls in clay jars fully intact. Clay really wasn't the issue. The issue was, that the tar, was with the tar that sealed the pipes. Tar will eventually rot. And tree, a tree root as thick as my pinky snaked its way into that opening and sprang thousands of hair-sized roots, clogging a four-inch pipe. That tiny piece of tar rotted off to become one tiny hole, letting in one tiny root that clogged the entire system of my house. And let me tell you something from personal experience. When things don't go out, they bubble up. Now the fundamental problem is not what I see in the toilet that won't go away. The problem is what I don't see underground. And until what I don't see bubbles up, I don't know there is a problem. But once I know there's a problem, I now have the responsibility to do something about it. What is bubbling up in your life? What are the things that are regularly bubbling up in your marriage? Logan, are you loving your wife and being gentle? Wife, are you submitting to his leadership? What things are regularly bubbling up in your job? Is there conflict every place you go? Do you demand those in authority over you to hear your voice and opinion on every subject and matter? What is regularly bubbling up in your private life? Because the things that are regularly bubbling up are often the things that have been excluded from God. And so whatever's bubbling up in your life, you've got to get God involved in that thing. And the temptation is to do what Ehud will do and to exclude God from the plans of his life. He's going to take matters into his own hands and we're going to see that he relies on some left-handed tactics. In verse 15, we see Ehud is a Benjamite. 
Now, Benjamin means son of the right hand. And notice what comes right after that, a left-handed man. Literally, a left-handed man in Hebrew reads bound in his right hand. So a very literal translation would be Ehud, son of the right hand, bound in his right hand. Don't miss that. It appears Ehud is not who he is supposed to be. Something is not all right with Ehud. First, he is a man on a double mission. Look at the end of verse 15. Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon. And then as we already saw in verse 16, Ehud makes a double-edged dagger with a specific length, with a specific binding for a specific location. And let me tell you, it's for a specific purpose. And then in verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon. So Israel's mission in verse 15 is tribute, and Israel's mission in verse 17 is tribute. And sandwiched between verse 15 and verse 17, we see Ehud's mission. A mission within a mission. Ehud is on a double mission. Verse 18, and it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he said, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, Eglon, said, keep silent. Shh, I don't want anybody to hear. And all who attended him left him. Now, we know Ehud is deceiving Eglon when he says he has a message for him. The word message is the word devar, and it means message or word, but it also means thing, as in an object. What did Eglon, what did Eglon expect from Ehud? Verse 21 Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. What did Eglon expect from Ehud? A devar, a message. But what did Ehud give him? A devar, a thing, a sword. And the phrase, a double-edged sword in Hebrew, literally means a sword of two mouths. So what we have here is a scene where, a God, where God appears to be absent from the plans. We have a double mission, words with double meaning, and a double-mouthed assassination weapon, deadly double-edged speech. And what else is interesting is that there is a strong syntactical parallel to Joab. Joab was David's military ruler. Joab also assassinated some people. He assassinated Abner and Hamasa, Saul's kinfolks. So you have Ehud assassinating somebody, you have Joab assassinating somebody. We're told that they both use deceptive speech. I have a message for you, O king. Joab says, is it well with you, my brother? 
We're both told that they have swords strapped to them. Same word in Hebrew. We're both told that they stab their victims in the belly. And we're both told both victims, the outcomes, that both victims spill refuse on the floor. And it gets really interesting when when Joab goes in to greet Amasa, whom he killed, it says he went, is it well with you, my brother? And he goes in to greet him with a kiss as all masculine men do. And he, with his right hand, specifically we're told with his right hand, he moved his beard and with his left hand stabbed him in the guts. The parallel is not incidental. This leadership is being portrayed negatively. Something else, the attendants go out, Ehud goes in, the sword goes in to Eglon's belly, refuse goes out, Ehud goes out, the attendants go back in. There's this concentric circle of verbs. Both maker and the instrument are paralleled, sharing the exact same verbs in Hebrew, they both go in, but Ehud is also paralleled with something else. Excrement and Ehud both go out. It literally reads in the Hebrew, and refuse, come, came, uh, and refuse came out and Ehud went out. It's Hebrew humor for, did you catch the whiff of Ehud's actions? It's implied. You gotta remember, he's only the second judge from the perfect judge. And so even though he will successfully escape in verse 27, he's not leading with the same dignity as Othniel. Now, when I was in college, I was mentored by a professor of old English, and I told him I didn't think I was lying about something that I was currently doing when I said, I have done it, as opposed to I am doing it or I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, Oh, so you meant it in the perfect tense verb form then, an action that begins in the past and continues on into the present. And I didn't know grammar. I knew grammar like night knows day. I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh, okay, yeah, perfect tense verb form. Something you do in the past, but it continues on in the present. And in English, we emphasize one or the other. And he just looked at me and says, Logan, you're lying. Now, syntactically, I might be able to wiggle my way out of that one in a courtroom if I have enough money. But my wife, she's too smart. She knows she can't just ask me, Logan, have you done, gone, bought, spent money on fill in the blank, it doesn't matter, recently. Because she knows I have the gift of immediately modifying time in direct relation to that event. She's too smart for that. So she'll say, Logan, have you done, gone, bought, did whatever X within the past two weeks? Uh Uh-oh. Now we've got quantitative data. And when I can honestly answer, no, I will. But then I know I just bought myself two weeks. So I'll go and do X. And then when she asks me, have you done X 
within the past two weeks? I am gratified to answer no. No, I haven't spent money on archery in the past two weeks. Why do you keep asking me? Hopefully to kind of blow it up to get three weeks out of it. But she's too clever for that. Now she knows she has to say, have you done, gone, bought, or given X since the last time I asked you? So you know what I'll do? I'll look her straight in the eye and I'll say, when's the last time you asked me? (laughs) Oh, how easy it is to be deceptive with our speech. But let me tell you something. God desires more from me. And God desires more from you. And God is ready to use anyone who trusts him more than deceptive action, more than manipulative schemes, more than any man-made plan any day. God is ready to use anyone who trusts him over man-made machinations. And so Ehud will miraculously escape God is sovereign. His fingerprints are in the text. He will stab Eglon. His refuse will come out. He'll lock the door. He'll he'll bail. The servants will return to find the door locked. They think he's using the restroom. I wonder why. They smell something. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait until they realize, hey, nobody goes to the restroom that long. And they'll go in and they'll find their king dead. Ehud will blow a trumpet. And then in verse 30, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. Notice throughout the case, throughout the book of Judges, when we see that, we often see that the enemy is subdued under the hand of Israel. And then it's almost always followed with, for the Lord rooted the enemy. We don't see that here. God is pretty much absent in this text apart from raising up Ehud. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land was undisturbed for 40, for 80 years. That's a long time and longest than the judges. God is still active. But has the judges cycle ended yet? They do evil in the sight of the Lord, God disciplines them, they cry out, God raises up a judge, God empowers a judge, didn't see that. God brings rest to the land, we see that. What comes next? The judge dies. We haven't seen that yet. And suddenly, the story shifts and we're given a one verse note on a a minor judge named Shamgar. Notice, we are explicitly told in verse 31 that after him, after who? Ehud, came Shamgar, and then jumped to the end of verse 31. He also, likewise, saved Israel, like Ehud. And since chapter four, verse one, if you just look there real quick, the judges cycle completes. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So Ehud dies, that's the seventh part of the cycle, and then they do evil in the sight of the Lord. So the judge's cycle completes. 
Meaning, don't miss this, meaning Shamgar is deliberately inserted before the formal conclusion of Ehud's story. Why? Why is Shamgar's deliverance explicitly linked to Ehud's deliverance? First, notice the strange weapon and its effectiveness in verse 31. Shamgar struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad. A farmer using an improvised weapon strikes down 600 Philistines. Obviously, this was a supernatural occurrence. And clearly, there's a bit of irony here. You have Ehud, a Benjamite, son of the right hand whose right hand is bound, on a well-planned, deceptive mission using words with double meaning who skillfully fashions a double-mouthed assassination tool who is like Joab and smells like doo-doo. Then you have Shamgar. He has no tribe. In fact, we're told he is the son of Anath. Anath is a Canaanite last name. He is a Canaanite convert. Anath is a Canaanite goddess. He has no formal weaponry. He has no army to summon. He gives no speech. No elaborate plans are mentioned, yet he also delivered Israel. This is satire in a nutshell. Shamgar is the contrast to the laborious preparations and manipulative maneuverings of Ehud. He is the positive profile to Ehud's unnecessary scheming. He was a farmer who simply led using what he had in hand. He didn't wait until he was great to lead. He used what he already had to lead. Here are my resources, God, the stuff I have. I'm now, God, going to lead with dignity with the stuff that you have given me. How did Shamgar do it? One against 600. Question, was it because of his high-tech weaponry? No. Do we tend to put far too much faith too much confidence in our technology? Do we tend to put too much security in our weaponry, our wealth, and our superior defense? Yes, we do. Can God turn off the spigot with an ice storm? Can God turn off the spigot with a war? Can God turn off the spigot with a disease? Yes, he can. Do you know what nearly caused that nuclear exchange during the Cold War? It was the sun's reflection off the clouds that triggered the Soviet defense system, nearly causing a nuclear war. The sun, the clouds. Technology can do massively important things, but a Christ-like leader, we can never put our faith in technology. We can never put our faith in 
politics. We can never put our faith in government and in movements or any man-made thing. Our faith must rest in God using the things he has given us. Do weapons matter with God? Say no. Do numbers matter with God? Say no. He can use one person with an ox goat. He can use one person with a jawbone. He can use one person with a hole puncher, a keyboard, a toothbrush, a broom to defeat the greatest army, the greatest nation, the most powerful dictator. It doesn't matter. He can use anything. It doesn't matter. Last week, I was given the honor to teach college students. Jake Johnson called me up and asked if I would teach. And around that same time, my sewer line went kaput. And so I was digging with a shovel in the sludge of my own making. And next thing I know, it's 6.45 and I'm supposed to be there at seven. Now, fortunately, I had planned on giving a lesson that I gave two days prior to young adults. I used what God had already given me. I was like Shamgar, without the gar. Just a sham. And I smelled like doo-doo. So I'm still trying to work that one out. But all that to say, you don't need extraordinary resources to be used by God. You don't need manipulation to make a difference. You just need to lead well with what God has given you. So let's put all this together. We need to involve God, the people of God, those who claim to be Christians, who are supernaturally united to the very person of Christ, who've been adopted into God's family, who are called the sons and daughters of the living God. We need to involve God in all of our going ins and in all of our going outs. We need to involve God in everything, the smallest to the greatest. All of our plans need to entail God. God, please bless this work today. God, give me the grace to do this thing today. God, let me know that this is something you're not blessing today. We involve God as the people of God in everything we do. Nothing is to be excluded from God in our lives. Everything needs to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? And we don't need to manipulate. Why? We don't have to. God can use an ox goad. Whatever's laying around, it doesn't matter. And we need to lead with dignity, not deception, by using what God has given us. This is an aspect of Christ-like leadership. This is a facet of how Christ led. This is one element by God's design from his word 
by which we conform into the image of his son, which I don't know if you realize that, but that's the destiny for every believer is to be made like the son. It's called progressive sanctification. And nothing brings God more glory than to see his sons and daughters become like his son. And so this is an aspect of Christ-like leadership that we seek to apply through the Spirit's working in our life. We must yield to it. But it, it is. It's, it's leading with what we have. What do you got? A couple fish, some bread? All right, go feed 5,000. What is that? Some mud? Let me spit on it. Go heal some eyes. What do you got? 12 idiots? Okay, go change the world. Doesn't matter. So how are you using what God has given you to lead with dignity? Think about the gifts God has given you. What stuff is in your life? What is your ox goad? And then consider, where has God placed you? Where do you live? Where do you work? Where do you play? That is your field. Where is, what is your ox code? And where is your field? And then go, lead with dignity, not deception. Go and lead with dignity. How? By using what God has given you where God has placed you. Imagine if we were a church that we decided, you know what, today, everyone in this room is going to make this same application according to this text. Imagine if we went out of here today saying, you know what, let's all lead with dignity, using what God has given us, where God has placed us, Imagine the impact we would have for the kingdom of God if we all grabbed a hold of this vision and said, yeah, all right, today, Monday through Saturday, I'm gonna pray about doing this every single day until it becomes a part of my life. Wow. What is your ox code? Where is your field? So, lead with dignity by using what God has given you, where God has placed you. I need to lead with dignity by using what God has given me, where God has placed me, and so do you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every passage is applicable in a unique way that displays a facet, a characteristic of our Lord, who is the only one who has abided perfectly by your word. And here we see that through the power of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives, bringing about change into the image of the Son, that we too are privileged to take part in this journey of becoming like Jesus. And since he alone has brought glory like no other on earth to you, we also seek to bring glory and honor to you 
by being like your son. We cannot do this without your help. We cannot do this without the body. And so I pray is we seek to elevate the name of our risen Lord through song, through preaching, through fellowship. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this time together, that we would be a people who yield to your working, that we would love you and we would love our neighbor. To your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.